optimistically view the year ahead, but it's also a time for reflection. We think about what was. We read the proliferating 10 best lists, but we also remember the people who passed away. Good evening and welcome to the 6 p.m. local news on WORT. I'm your host, David Ahrens. This hour will take time to remember the lives of a handful of the people who passed away in 2023. People who, each in their unique way, made a difference, certainly in the lives of those who loved them, but also touched the lives of our communities in their good works. We start at the beginning of this year, when on February 17th, former UW-Madison Chancellor Rebecca Blank passed away at the age of 67. Blank served as Chancellor of UW for almost a decade, a long spell by academic standards. She resigned from UW-Madison last year to become the president of Northwestern University, a private school that doesn't have a legislature to answer to. Blank had a hard tenure at UW when she began her work, the UW and the state as a whole was still suffering the reverberations of Act 10, the wounding of public sector unions. She came in saying that her primary goal was to create a stable financial base for UW and tuition that was affordable to in-state students. That was going to be proved to be difficult, given the political environment. In her second year, the legislature made major cuts in the UW budget. And then in her third year, then-Governor Walker made even greater cuts and at the same time froze tuition. Here's Blank discussing the impact of the budget cuts on Wisconsin Public Television's Here and Now in 2015. It's the biggest cut this university has ever received in its state funding. Um, I'm particularly concerned about the way in which it's phased in, which is that it's not phased in. We take you know, a $150 million cut immediately starting July 1st, and that's going to be very hard to do. That's just a very large cut in a very short period of time. It would be much better if there was a bit of a glide path here. Where do you go first? Um, well, there's two things that you can do in the short run to save money, right? And that you're only limited to how far you can go with this. So it's clear we're going to have to find some way to fill a bit of a gap because you just can't take this whole cut in one year. Um, first of all, you do look at budget cuts. And we've been doing exercises with the various schools and colleges, and we're clearly going to be at the upper end of those exercises. And my expectation is that every school and college will be doing some staff layoffs. We will be cutting advising staff. We'll be cutting programming staff. We, we just have to do that in the face of this. And that will not be to the benefit of our students. During her near decade as chancellor of UW's flagship school, she established the Public History Project an attempt to remember and reckon with the university's complicated history of racism and anti-Semitism. This included research on the university's relationship with the KKK just a century ago. Later, she faced the pandemic crisis, an utterly unique development that required essentially a new form of education, virtual higher education. None of us have ever lived through a pandemic of this scale and we're navigating it moment by moment. We are in completely uncharted waters right now at the university. Rebecca Blank had a deep commitment to social equity, and in particular, in lifting the living standards and life prospects of poor people. Perhaps her most important and long-lasting initiative is Bucky's Tuition Promise. 
this program established in 2018, committed UW to providing free tuition and fees for four years to students whose household income this year would be under $65,000 a year. The GOP legislature has refused to support the program, and now the funding relies on private gifts and licensing revenues. While the Madison community knew her as the leader of the university, Blank's work before she became chancellor was likely more significant and will have a very long and wide impact. Before she was chancellor, she was the U.S. Secretary of Commerce in the Obama administration. An economist by training, her work had a transforming and positive effect on how the nation supports poor people. For decades, the federal government used the same formula to define poverty. The definition or the measure of poverty is important. For example, if the U.S. defined poor as a household of four earning less than $10,000 per year, then those below that amount got food stamps or an earned income tax credit, while those above may get fewer food stamps or none. Blank measured what was being used against the real-life economic situation of poor people. She conducted many studies and published about the problem. She fought for a change in the federal bureaucracy and in Congress. Her work shed light on the discrepancy between what we define as poor and how people actually lived. There was even a 2001 episode of The West Wing in which the political implications of instituting a new formula are discussed. On Monday, the OMB is putting out a new formula for calculating the poverty level. I saw that. Does it need presidential approval before it goes to Congress? Yeah. What's the problem? It's a good news, bad news thing. Under the new formula, poverty is up 2%. It was anyone under 17,524 before. Now it's 20,000. What does that check out to? Four million new poor people. Four million? Yeah. Obviously, that's the bad news. Yeah? The good news is, is that more people will be eligible for benefits. And taxpayers are nuts about that. Let's get back to the bad news. Four million people became poor on the president's watch. They didn't become poor. They were poor already. And now we're calling them poor. What was wrong with the old formula? I don't know. Find out. It's possible that this is a statistical reality and not a political fight. Well, get with someone at OMB and find out what was wrong with the statistical reality of the old formula. Yeah. Do it today. Yeah. After Sam and Toby kick it around, a character, presumably based on blank, tells Sam about the problems with the old formula. Can you tell me how the current standard was reached? The new one? The current one. The new one hasn't been signed off on. We have to sign off on it. Why? It's much more accurate. How was the old one reached, the current one? In 1963, an Eastern European immigrant named Molly Orshansky, who was working over in Social Security, came up with it. Food was the most costly living expense where she came from. Our cost of living formula for the last 40 years has been based on life in Poland during the Cold War. This is what I'm talking about. I mean, food doesn't account for one-third of a family's budget. Housing is more expensive than food. The current model also doesn't take into account transportation and health insurance. So let's call the current model the old model and sign off on the new model. In a rare true-to-history account on television, the TV version of Blank offers a solution to the political problem of the administration, seemingly increasing the ranks of the poor. Rather than re- actually replacing the old formula, they let it stand, but at the same time also use Blank's new model, which increased the number of poor people receiving badly needed support.
It took almost 20 years for Rebecca Blank's findings to be put into practice. Under President Obama, the change was finally made. And yes, just as Toby predicted in the episode, Obama was criticized for increasing the number of poor people. Blank was the author of numerous books. Her titles include It Takes a Nation, A New Agenda for Fighting Poverty, Changing Inequality, and Is the Market Moral? Rebecca Blank lived in Washington, D.C. for many years and taught at major universities throughout the U.S. In between her departure from UW and taking her position, she was diagnosed with cancer. She returned to Madison, which had become her home. That was Richard Davis soloing on Iron Man, recorded in 1963 with band leader Eric Dolphy. Dolphy wrote the music for and named it after Davis, who he called the Iron Man. Dolphy could not have come up with a more apt name. Davis can be heard on 400 albums. It was said that he could record a jingle in the morning, play with a symphony for the afternoon matinee, and then play all night with a jazz combo. After the recording of Iron Man, he continued to play and teach bass for almost six decades. Madison remembers Richard Davis as a professor of music for almost 40 years, but before he came to UW, Davis had one of the most stellar careers in modern American music. There is hardly a musical genre that Davis did not influence the place of the bass. Indeed, Davis played with Igor Stravinsky, who described his playing as godlike. Although he was classically trained and earned a degree in music performance, Davis found that in the early 50s, black musicians were not welcome in the world of classical music. Speaking with WORT in 2016, he described the barriers he faced. Well, I had so much support from my family that I didn't notice any hurdles in the beginning of my playing the bass. I noticed racial issues around 18 and 19 years old. Mm -hmm. I was told by my musical director to uh, play symphonic music also. And that's when I noticed the racial elements coming in. They didn't want any blacks in the orchestras. So now at audition, they would close shop before they'd see me. That was a, not a hurdle. I consider it, in a sense, a motivation. Yes. Because I knew I could play the music as good as anybody else. So they didn't stand in my way. It was Davis's work with Sarah Vaughan that first brought him notoriety. Over the next 15 years after he left Vaughan, Davis played with virtually every major jazz artist in the U.S. But he later formed his own group called Heavy Sounds with the leading drummer Elvin Jones. The impact of these recordings opened opportunities for him in rock and pop music. Most notably was his performance and the musical direction of Van Morris's breakthrough initial album, Astral Weeks. The entire album is virtually a duet between Davis's bass and Morrison's vocals. If I ventured in the slipstream Between the viaducts of your dream where my world still runs crack And the Dutch and the back road stop Could you find me? 
me Or would you kiss in my eyes A later cut, Slim Slow Slide, again is a duet where Davis's bass plays as a rejoinder to Morrison's tenor-like phrases. Slim Slow Slide Horseshoe ride in white as snow. Slim slow slide up. Horseshoe ride in white as snow. The rock critic Grail Marcus described his work on the album as, quote, the greatest bass ever heard on a rock album. Other mainstream musicians took notice, and soon he was recording with Paul Simon and Bruce Springsteen. As his work in the pop music lane expanded, his opportunities in jazz declined. In 1977, Davis came to Madison, where he mentored generations of musicians as a professor of bass, jazz, and ensemble. He was known as a tough tutor. He told On Wisconsin, quote, I teach character. That's the most important thing for me. Follow through and hard work. The world's not waiting for you. There's lots of talent out there, unquote. He founded the foundation for young bassists to make sure that everyone could have access to learning the bass. Peter Dominguez was the first graduate of the Richard Davis Foundation for Young Bassists. In 2018, Dominguez outlined Davis's approach to teaching in an interview on WORT. And I'd, I'd come out of lessons just roaring, you know, with Richard. But he, he, when he came, you know, he was he came from New York and he had that heavy New York accent, and it was hard to understand him. And but, but he always did a thing where he would he would grab your bass, anything that you were playing, and he would immediately tear it up, and then you know he would he would just play it flawlessly. And then hand it back to you. And he'd always say, yeah, and I don't even know your bass. You know, and he'd just go, oh, how do you... <laughs> it really taught me that, that I had to get down to business. And he was he was kind of an old school teacher. You had to, you had to go through... We really didn't study any jazz. We studied the, 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 the double bass. We, we studied pitch and accuracy and articulation and groove. And, and I realized in, in about two years in, he started giving me more information. The more I was prepared, the more information I got out of him. He was he was really doing old school where he wasn't going to give up uh, what he knew about it until you you showed that you were really dedicated and you were gonna you know you were gonna uh, apply yourself. Davis's work as an advocate for racial justice and reconciliation was also legendary. In 1998, he created the Retention Action Project, an early form of a DEI program aimed at improving the graduation rates of students of color. In 2000, he founded Madison's Institute for the Healing of Racism, which attempts to raise consciousness about the history and pathology of racism and foster racial unity. WORT asked Davis in 2016 what message he'd like to share about healing racism in Madison. Here's what he said. I would say the main thing is study, to read many, many books, to enlarge your peripheral knowledge of life itself. Also, be kind and passionate and forgiving to everyone that you cross paths with. And thirdly, be active in being a part of the transformation of racism. 
Each individual has a strong part, and if they think others are going to do it, that causes a problem. That problem will never change. That's all, that's all I got to say about that. Davis passed away on September 6th at the age of 93. The bassist, William Parker, said in a New York Times obituary, Richard Davis was a beautiful musician and human being. He reminded me of an African king, regal and strong. I praise him not because he could play both classical and jazz. I applaud him because the brother had a big poetic sound full of freedom. listening to a special edition of the 6 p.m. local news. We're remembering notable people we lost in the year 2023. I'm your host, David Ahrens. Ada Deer passed away on August 15th, just after she turned 88. It would take too long to recount all of the firsts as a woman and as an Indian that can be linked to her name, Ada Deer. Here are a few. First woman chair of the Menominee Tribe. First Indian to lead the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs. First Indian graduate and later lecturer at the UW School of Social Work. First Indian from Wisconsin to run for Congress. The list could go on to include her work at Harvard and winning a beauty contest of Indian women. But these achievements may not be as significant as her work as an advocate for her tribe's right to retain its tribal status. Back in the 50s, U.S. policy, following hundreds of years of physical and cultural genocide against Native Americans, attempted to put into place a policy called termination. This would be the bureaucratic final step in America's centuries-long campaign to eradicate American Indians. After termination, all self-governance by tribal members would end. No tribes, no Indians, no reservation lands, Everyone is equal, sort of. The Menominee Reservation in northeast Wisconsin would simply become another county. The nation that existed on those lands for hundreds of years before a European landed in the U.S. would disappear. Ada Deer was born on that reservation in 1935 to a father who worked in the tribal lumber mill and a mother who was German and worked as a nurse in the tribal clinic. Tribal members were angry at the move to terminate their status and their control of the reservation land. Immediately, outside interests started buying land and cutting down the old-growth woods. Deer then made the decision, audacious at the time, to move to Washington, D.C. and become a full-time and self-appointed lobbyist for the tribe for the purpose of turning this around. She wrote articles, met with legislators, bureaucrats, and anyone who would listen. Her efforts were successful. In 1973, President Nixon signed an act to restore the tribal rights of the Menominee. The same year, Deer was elected chair of the nation. 
Later, as the Director of Bureau of Indian Affairs, she fought for the recognition of hundreds of Alaskan tribes that had been denied their sovereign rights. In a 1992 interview on WORT, Deere explained why she ran for Congress. And uh, I'd like to point out that uh, I am the ultimate outsider. You know, a woman, uh, educator, social worker, regular person, person of average means, and an American Indian. And these are not you know, high-ticket uh, items uh, in society. By that I mean um, many of the helping professions such as uh, nurses and teachers and social workers are uh, in um, the lower levels of uh, status, although we perform many, many important functions. So uh, in terms of being uh, outside, I am outside. Women have been outside, people of color have been outside, and uh, in my campaign, I am working to open up the system so that many, many more people who've been shut out can be included. So I have a vision. My vision is peace, justice, equality for the world. Peace, justice, equality for everyone in our society. And I want to work for a universal, comprehensive, single-payer uh, health care system. We don't have access for many people to a good health care at this point. Uh, and job creation is another whole uh, issue. But you can see that um, I'm thinking about individuals, I'm thinking about uh, the total family, the total community, and I disagree strongly with the lack of leadership of President Bush, the poor leadership in the Congress, and I know from my 30 years of activism that one person can make a difference. And in this election, I want to point out how every vote counts and every person out there can make a difference in the election results. After her passing, Ben Wickler, chair of the Democratic Party, and the godson of Ada Deer said, she said everyone, including you, hearing this right now, should dedicate themselves to advancing justice right now. Maria Powell died on November 11th at the age of 59. Powell was an environmental scientist and activist who worked very hard to protect Madison's air and water. For over 30 years, she was instrumental in supporting and leading campaigns for a safe and healthful environment for everyone. Towards that end, Powell and her husband, Jim Powell, founded the Midwest Environmental Justice Organization. Unlike many environmental or conservation groups, this group focused on working with low-income communities and communities of color throughout the Midwest. These communities typically endure the greatest burden of pollution, but often have the fewest resources to protect themselves. Powell was an early advocate in the decades-long dispute with the Madison Kipp Corporation over dangerous pollutants contaminating the air and ground in the Atwood neighborhood. Maria worked tirelessly on the seemingly interminable battle with the company and the state DNR, which stalled and attempted to quash local litigation against the company. 
While she fought, she studied and in 2004 received a Ph.D. in environmental science, focusing on fish biology. While others might have used the degree to establish a comfortable life as an academic or, heavens forbid, a corporate cipher, Dr. Powell committed herself to working directly for people who were often plowed over with difficult and obtuse scientific language and rarely, if ever, have the money to hire scientific experts. After decades, the action against Madison Kipp was largely successful in that it forced Kipp to change their practices and reduce emissions. The company wound up paying dozens of households near the plant $7.2 million. Also, after years of dragging their feet, the DNR finally sued Kipp, but settled with a mere $300,000 fine. About 10 years ago, the Powell's attention turned to the problem of PFAS in Madison's water supply. At the time, only a small cohort of scientists had begun to investigate the possible effects of these ubiquitous forever chemicals that's now linked to a litany of negative health impacts. In an interview with WORT, Powell described some potential health effects of the chemicals. They can cause a range of health problems from high cholesterol, immune system and thyroid dysfunction, pregnancy complications, kidney and liver problems, and, and, and some types of cancer. Some of these studies were done on humans and some were done on animals, but the science is getting more and more clear that these are very toxic compounds. One of the major uses of PFAS that affects water quality is in fire suppression, especially when used on aircraft. Powell suspected that PFAS had been used extensively at Truex Field and that the foam then found its way into Starkweather Creek and then flowed from Starkweather Creek into Lake Monona. But regardless of the environmental source of the PFAS, a lake, stream, or ground, it eventually will seep into the aquifer from which Madison draws its drinking water. Here's Dr. Powell speaking at a meeting of the Madison Utility, where she urges the city not to wait for a federal standard before they act on PFAS in the well water. State standards alone are going to take three years just for the two compounds, and we feel very strongly that we should not just wait for those standards to be developed while people are drinking and being exposed to PFAS in other ways. We should act right now. We should not just go, well, let's just wait for standards. The Madison Environmental Justice Organization conducted numerous tests of Starkweather Creek and Lake Monona and found very high levels of PFAS. Fish from the creek also had high levels of PFAS. Powell's asked the city health department to post advisory at the lake docks to warn the people who were fishing there of the potential dangers of regularly eating lake fish. She also wanted the advisories written in Hmong and Spanish as well as English. When the city failed to do advisories, she and Jim made them and posted their own signs. Powell regularly attended meetings of the Madison Water Utility Board and its technical advisory committees to ask for testing of all of the Madison wells. Too often, she was quietly mocked, despite the fact that she was usually more expert than anyone else in the room. When the utility agreed to test the wells, it found that the well next to the airport did have a high level of PFAS. 
after months of delays and objections of the water utility, Powell got the city to shut down the well. That well has been shut down since 2019, and it continues to be shut down as state politicians battle over appropriate groundwater standards for PFAS chemicals. Just weeks ago, WRT reported that the well may reopen as soon as 2025 with a new system for treating PFAS-contaminated water. A year ago or so, Powell started to suffer from a variety of health ailments. She soon learned that she had pancreatic cancer. She had to consider whether the cancer was the result of her youth when she regularly swam in the toxic soup of the Fox River, which is heavily contaminated by PCBs and other industrial byproducts. Here's an excerpt of an interview with a colleague of Maria Powell's, Beth Slice, an activist on the North Side. Maria had this innate ability, I felt, that I found her easy to speak to. She was a really good listener, and she had this ability to understand all aspects of an issue and then figure out what components of that she could address, working with people in the community, and how to bring things forward in terms of communicating with city alders, and other people in the community that cared about the issues that she was working on. She was brilliant. She was an incredible scientist. She could look at data and understand what she was seeing and then interpret that data and share it with people in a way that they then could understand and then understand the issues that she was working on. She loved Madison deeply. Her people came from Madison. They were early settlers here. And she loved the people of Madison and wanted the city to do whatever it could to take care of its residents and give it the best place that it possibly could be in terms of the environment and having it be a safe place to live. In addition to dozens of peer-reviewed journal articles, she was the author of a book whose long title best describes Powell's work. The title is Invisible People and Invisible Risks. Scientific Assessments of Environmental Health Risks Overlook Minorities and How Community Participatory Science Can Make Them Visible. Former Senator Herb Cole passed away yesterday at the age of 88. Although Cole served 24 years as Wisconsin senator, he may be best known and remembered for buying the Milwaukee Bucks to keep them from moving to another city. Not only did he buy the Bucks, he also paid $100 million to build the first serve forum. Cole owned and managed a major chain of supermarkets that he sold in 1979. 
In 88, when Senator Bill Proxmire retired, Cole self-financed what was at the time an expensive campaign. His slogan, Nobody's Senator But Yours, was frequently heard on TV and radio. Cole's focus in the Senate was on protecting the interests of the Wisconsin dairy industry and the state's elderly. He also voted for higher taxes and ending tax breaks for the rich. Although he didn't want to be described as liberal, his record was consistent with the liberal wing of the Senate. Not taken by his great wealth or position, Cole was known as being a quiet and humble man. Tony Earl, the 41st governor of Wisconsin, died on February 23rd at the age of 86. Earl served as governor from 1983 to 1987. He served only one term and then was defeated by Tommy Thompson. Earl worked his way up to governor of Wisconsin, starting as a Marathon County prosecutor, then a member of the state assembly from Warsaw. He then quickly rose to be the assembly majority leader. He left the legislature to make a failed bid for state attorney general, where he was pitted against a candidate with a hard-to-beat last name, La Follette. The governor, Pat Lucy, then appointed him to be secretary of the DNR. The agency was then so reviled in much of the state that people joked that its initials actually stood for damn near Russian. But Earl's main interest was to reduce the toll of industrial pollution on Wisconsin lakes and rivers. This was Wisconsin's first serious effort to reduce the mercury pollution that was poisoning the fish in northern lakes. His efforts were met with fierce resistance and wild predictions by the paper industry that it would not survive instituting pollution controls and that other manufacturers would immediately head to southern states. It didn't happen. But Earl ran for governor and easily won in a contest against an heir to the Cola fortune. But things did not go smoothly. He stepped into the job during the worst of the Reagan recession and a record state budget deficit. Earl raised the sales tax, but that increase continued to hang over his head for the duration of his term. From the beginning of his term, Earl was a champion of civil rights, He appointed the first black leader of a major state agency. To the shock of many, he also appointed an openly gay journalist as his press secretary. He also established a commission to study pay inequities between men and women. And then he actually did something about it by raising the pay of many women-dominated jobs. After his term, Earl ran for the Senate but lost to Herb Cole. He went into private practice as a lawyer, while he worked for campaign reforms and for the protection of the natural world of Wisconsin. There were, of course, many more who passed away this year who also had a profound effect on our community. But we couldn't close this program without mentioning Juan Jose Lopez. In June, Madison lost one. He was well-described in one obituary as a cornerstone of the Madison community because he was the foundation of so many community efforts, whether that was Centro Hispano, Nuestro Mundo, 
with the Latino Chamber of Commerce. He was not only the leader, but he was always ready and willing to do the day-to-day work. Lopez was also the first Latino to serve on the Madison School Board, where he served for a very long 12 years. During that time, Juan was an advocate for all underserved kids. He was also an important link between the community and the school district. Lopez was born and raised in San Antonio and returned there for burial. We're also going to remember Frank Turkheimer. Turkheimer was not a prosecutor out of a TV drama who springs a surprise witness that seals the fate of a defendant or uses a pyrotechnic closing that blows away the jury. He was the opposite. In one profile of Turkheimer, the reporter noted that in the two-week trial where he prosecuted the Secretary of Treasury for bribery, he never once smiled or frowned. Turkheimer prosecuted that bribery case when he was part of the Watergate prosecution team that led to the resignation of President Nixon. He said that when he was working on the Watergate case, one night he went out to dinner, and when he came back, he found that the FBI had ransacked his office. A few years later, he was appointed the U.S. Attorney for Western Wisconsin, where he focused on fraud and corruption. Among the cases were a corruption charge against a county judge and another important case against the large dairy corporations for fixing the price of milk. As a child of parents who fled for their lives from Nazi Germany, Turkheimer had a deep concern about political systems that used the law for its own purpose or was itself criminal. During his decades of teaching law at UW, Turkheimer took time off to teach in German law schools. He also wrote books on post-Holocaust trials, as well as evidence and trial procedures. Frank Turkheimer died in Madison in September at the age of 84. And lastly, we remember Gary Mitchell, a labor and political activist in Wisconsin for over 40 years. He was a worker and a shop steward at UW, while also serving as the vice president of AFSME International. He was a dedicated leader and compassionate ally of workers of every kind, everywhere. He didn't read about his death in the newspaper because he told his family not to have his obit published in the, quote, scab, unquote, Madison newspapers. Earlier this year, I had a chance to attend his celebration of life and work at the Labor Temple. Here's what his friends and colleagues had to say about him from earlier this year. Okay, I'm Mary Chin Chuckling. And uh, how do you know Gary? I've known Gary for 35 years. Uh, through AFSCME, the labor union that we both worked or worked with, and then we both worked on the UW Madison campus. Um, very compassionate, put his whole heart into anything he did, or it wasn't worth doing. Um, get him ramped up about politics. That was always a <laughs> one to really uh, poke him about. He was also a labor union steward on campus, and very passionate. Uh, that's probably the biggest thing. Um, he would get 
really ramped up if there was a true injustice versus you know, someone calling in sick, which is a little more control. But if someone was set up at work or had other problems, that would be an issue that he would go all out for. Here's John Grable, political director for AFSCME Wisconsin. Uh, Gary's passing has left the world a little less kind, a little less caring, a little less welcoming. It is up to all of us to make up the difference. You are missed, brother. Thank you for sharing your talents fighting for working people, and thank you for spending your time with us. Gary was born on February 29, 1955, in Beloit, and died February this year. In addition to his unusual dedication to empowering working people, Gary was also a leap year baby. When he was 68, he said he was celebrating his 17th birthday. He didn't get many birthdays, but he had a life well lived. There is a page in history where the workers first fought back in the might of exploitation. An economist who advocated for people in poverty, a bassist who played with pop stars and jazz greats, mented youth, and worked on the endless project of healing racism, a trailblazer who broke down barriers and successfully took on the federal government, an environmental advocate who used her PhD to help grassroots citizens, a progressive governor who championed civil rights, and a labor militant who is mostly remembered for his kindness. Those are some of the people we lost in 2023, people who worked to make the world better and more equitable for us who are left in this world. Feel the sky. Let your soul and spirit fly into the misty. This program has been brought to you by WORT News. I'm your host, David Ahrens. This program is produced by News Director Charlie Pittman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when the four corners, I want to hear.